So Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, it came about in the 30th year on the 5th day of the 4th month while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the 5th of the month in the 5th year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now we looked at this Sunday morning at length, talking about a glorious vision for a heavenly life, or a heavenly vision for a glorious life, however you want to say it, it is learning to live a life with vision. God has given us vision in His Word. Wonderfully, marvelously. We have vision. And that vision comes through preparation, the preparation and the work of the Holy Spirit, although it's not always what we think we're preparing for. Oftentimes God will prepare us for something completely other than what we're planning. So remember what we said Sunday morning, plan, prepare, but prepare for the plans to change. It begins with preparation and moves into revelation as God begins to unveil and reveal things to us. And then finally location, He plops us down in a place and He says, Now, here's your calling. For Ezekiel, it was at the river Kabar. The year was 593 B.C. The priest, Ezekiel himself, having just turned 30 that year, that's what it means by the 30th year, we talked about that, he spent his previous five years there in exile. And all of a sudden, five years into this captivity, Ezekiel receives his calling, and we'll look at that tonight. But I want to warn you ahead of time, this is a dangerous study. In fact, Ezekiel was nearly excluded from the Hebrew Bible altogether. I don't know if you knew that. Reformed Hebrew scholar Solomon Freehoff wrote, The book of Ezekiel has always been a problem book. As late as the 2nd century A.D., in the time of the Mishnah, there were doubts and concerns about it. These doubts were strong enough in those early days to raise the question of whether Ezekiel should be one of the biblical books. Some of those doubts included things like unusual references to certain temple procedures that didn't seem to jive with Torah law. And the Jews who understood Torah law and studied Torah law very well and understood what the Levitical procedures and practices were in the temple read Ezekiel and said, wait a minute, that's different than what we were told back here in Leviticus. That doesn't fit. And so there were those who said, because we don't understand this, because it doesn't seem the same as in our Torah law, we can't accept this. Others just couldn't handle the unparalleled, otherworldly vision of these first three chapters. I mean, it is bizarre. It is beyond literally anything that we have seen thus far in Scripture. The revelation here to Ezekiel is astounding. Now, for you and for me, having studied the book of Revelation, as I hope you have, maybe the vision isn't that astounding. But for those who are seeing this for the first time, or hearing it from Ezekiel, in the first few hundred years after he presented this scroll, after it was received, the people were saying, this is, this is astounding. And so these doubts began to arise until one man by the name of Hananiah, son of Hezekiah, not a biblical figure, but a rabbinical scholar, put the doubts to rest, at least for most conservative Jewish scholars. We're told that uh, he quite literally burned the midnight oil. It's written in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Shabbat 13b, if you'd like to look it up. (laughs) Hananiah, son of Hezekiah by name, is to be remembered for blessing. What did he do? 
300 barrels of oil were taken up to him, and he sat in an upper chamber and reconciled them. That is, he reconciled all the concerns and all the doubts of Ezekiel, he reconciled with Torah law. He showed how, in fact, they do parallel and they do work perfectly. And until he did that, rabbis were concerned. After he did that, there were many who said at that point, hey, it's cool, it's all right. But they say, if not for this man's effort, quote, the book of Ezekiel would have been hidden away. I say, if not for the effort of the Holy Spirit, (laughs) I say the Holy Spirit had a divine intention with this book, and the book is included in Hebrew Scripture and in the Bible as we have it because the Spirit wanted it to be included because the Spirit authors it. And I like to point that out with every new book we study. The author is not Ezekiel. He's simply the penman. The Holy Spirit authored this book, and I believe you will see that as we go forward. Ironically, the way some Hebrew scholars feel about Ezekiel is exactly the way some Christian scholars feel about Revelation. It's too hard to understand. It's just too freaky. It gets way too out there. And the rabbinical scholars, they say, Ezekiel is dangerous for the uninitiated. Therefore, they felt it should not be studied except by the learned few. So, this evening I say, prepare for initiation. (laughs) And let's get dangerous. Verse 4, picking up the vision. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. A great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Why from the north? Before we even see the vision, that's the direction that Ezekiel points out this vision is coming. And this would not be north of Babylon by the river Kabar, because remember, Ezekiel is now caught up in a vision. And I would submit to you that the vision is being seen as coming from north of Jerusalem, north of the land. Why? Because the north was always the direction of invasion. The north was always, that's where the Assyrians came down and came in. That's where the Babylonians came down and came into the land from the north. The Lord now arrives from that same direction. Why? Because he implicates himself as the grand author of the punishments going on in Judah at that time. He is the one who brings it. He is the hand behind it. The author of the judgments utilizing these terrible invaders, Assyria and Babylon. And so Ezekiel sees this this great storm, speaking of judgment, coming from the north. Verse 5. Within it were four figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, well, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the form or had the face of a man. All four had the face of the lion, a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies. John will tell us there were two more wings, as a matter of fact, covering their feet. 
And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. By the way, in verse 12, that's the way I want to be. Wherever the Spirit's about to go, that's where I want to be headed. And if the Spirit changes course, I want to change course. And if the Spirit stops, I want to stop. I want to be where the Spirit is and in step with the Spirit. And these beings, these living beings, these kai in Hebrew, you know the to life, to life, lachayim? Well, the chai is the name of these living beings. Living being is just simply the word chai. It means alive, these living ones. And so in verse 13 it says, in the midst of the living beings, the chai, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and the lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of of lightning. Now, stop there for a minute. How would you describe this vision? I mean, how do you use human words to describe what Ezekiel is seeing? I think he's doing the absolute best he can, but he's using human language to describe something entirely unhuman. I love that he says, and I pointed this out on Sunday, that they, they look like human form, but then goes on to describe something completely unhuman. You know, each one had human form and four faces, four wings, calves with feet. I mean, I'm like, I don't know anybody like that. Perhaps you do. But it's amazing. And so he's trying to describe this, this amazing vision. This is number one. And I'm going to give you some things just to outline the chapter going down. Number one is the cherubim. These are the cherubim. We first hear about these beings very early on in Scripture. In fact, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 tells us, God drove the man out. At the east of the Garden of Eden, He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction, remember that phrase, turned every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. So you need to take what we've just learned from Ezekiel and place it back in your theology of the creation story, of the garden story. Because the angel standing there guarding the Garden of Eden (laughs) looked like this. You don't want to run into this guy. Because no matter which direction you come from, either his bull, his man, his lion, or his eagle is going to see you coming. This is a terrifying Terrifying looking angel. Not all angels look like this. Uh, we have, you know, when the angels appeared to Mary, he just appeared as a man. You know, Gabriel, when he appears to Daniel, apparently just looked like a man in, in, a, in a robe. And so, not all the angels, typically, they just looked as though they had human appearance. The cherubim are very distinct and very well described by both Ezekiel and, as we'll see, John as well. It is a cherubim who, I would say, even to this day, guards the entrance to the Garden of Eden. So if anyone comes near, (laughs) they will run screaming, terrified. We hear about the cherubim again when God gave Moses the design of the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, verse 18 says, You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at two ends of the mercy seat. Now, there had been no description given of the cherubim. How is Moses supposed to instruct his guys, his artisans, to make the mercy seat if no one had seen them. Well, we know in Exodus, God basically downloaded the information to Moses. He gave him the instructions as to how it was supposed to look, how they were supposed to be made. 
Do they have four faces on the mercy seat? I don't know, but they are called very definitely the cherubim. And from Genesis 3 all the way up to Ezekiel chapter 1, every single reference to the cherubim in Scripture, with the exception of the cherubim standing guard, every reference is either to the Ark of the Covenant or to a title that is given to God. And that title is in Psalm 80, verse 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. So it's always in reference to God that the cherubim are mentioned. Anytime you see a cherubim, you're going to have some immediate connection to the Lord. And suddenly Ezekiel is allowed a glimpse of these actual beings. And at first, as I said, he doesn't even name them cherubim. In fact, he won't name them until we get to chapter 10. Here he just calls them chai. In chapter 10, he names them 15 times. And in that chapter, referring to them as cherubim, uh, chapter 10, verse 15, as an example, then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings I saw by the river Kabar. the The river Kabar, that word Kabar is mentioned eight times in the Bible. All eight, only in Ezekiel, as he was the one stationed there, living there by the river Kabar. Now, a few things to note about the cherubim, based on what we've just read. Number one, they're not pretty. (laughs) Not by human standards. I think when I taught Revelation, I gave this example, but when I kiss my wife, my kids don't think that's pretty. They, ooh, oh, gross, yicky, ah. When they get married, they're going to think it's pretty. Or at least pretty nice, you know. And it's it's what we're going to experience, I believe. We read about the cherubim here and we say, whoa, wow. I mean, that's frightening, it's, it's bizarre, it's different, it, it's strange. I believe when we see them in heaven, we will just be in awe at the splendor, at the beauty. But for now, we're just going to say they're not pretty. Four faces, legs and feet like a calves, multiple wings... But I want to point out, as I often need to, that they don't wear diapers and shoot arrows. No, 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 no. And they don't wear Victorian dresses with lacy wings. Every Christmas tree topper out there is a bland offense to the reality of the cherubim. These are powerful, frightening, holy angels. And don't forget, as we will see in Ezekiel 28, Satan was a cherubim. That was his first form. That's how he looked. And the description in Ezekiel 28 is breathtaking. He was absolutely magnificent. Well, I don't want to get all into that tonight, but Satan was a cherubim. What does that tell us about the cherubim? It tell us, tells us that, that they're not automatons. They do have a will. Satan would exert his will to rise up against God. They have a will. Therefore, and I think this is marvelous, the cherubim who worship constantly around the throne of God do so because they want to. They were created to. They were given that gift of worship and even given the, the presence of God at their creation, which we don't know much about, but they are there to worship God, but they want to worship God. Those who are there have chosen to be there. Kind of like you tonight. Those of you who are here have chosen to be here. I hope most of you at least have. <laughs> they are not pretty. Well, 
We know Ezekiel caught this glimpse of the cherubim, so did John, so we better go over there and take a look. Keep your finger there and run over to Revelation chapter 4. You should be wearing out a path between Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. So for the next few months ahead of us, as we go through the next two prophetic books, we will be wearing a path back and forth to Revelation uh, substantially. Revelation chapter 4, we'll begin about verse 2. This is after John has been caught up in a beautiful representation of the church being called up. As Jesus says, come up here. And verse 2 says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, sardius is a red stone. Jasper is is more of a maybe like a diamondish type of a stone. The sardius, that red stone, man, I, could, I could just just stop right here, and we could spend the rest of the time in Revelation. The red stone reminding us of the blood of Calvary. You know, the, the diamond-like jasper, just that beauty, and but that red is coming through very clearly. The red of the sardius in appearance, and there's a rainbow around the throne. Like an emerald in appearance, well an emerald's a green and, and a rainbow is obviously multicolored, but the emerald gives off a shine and that's what he's, in, he's in, um, implying there. And around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Well this is similar to what already Ezekiel is describing, lightning and, and what looked like coals darting about. And then John says... And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What are those? Go listen to the Revelation study. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. John says, note this, the first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had the face uh, like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy for the Father, Holy for the Son, Holy for the Spirit is the Lord the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. But there's a problem. Why does John only mention one face each when Ezekiel mentions four faces each? And that is very simply answered by perspective. John only saw the angels, the cherubim, going one direction. John makes an assumption. Man, eagle, uh, a calf, and what's the fourth one? Lion. Lion. There they are. And that's all John sees. Now you would think with the motion of the cherubim that John would see all four faces pretty quick, but he doesn't. At least he doesn't mention that. He just says one face for each of these four angels. How do you miss a four-faced being? Well, I don't know. I missed Bakersfield once. (laughs) I was driving up at a group of teenagers in a 15-passenger van, and we were going on a Mr. Pibb run because you couldn't get Mr. Pibb in Southern California, but you could at least, well, Bakersfield, Southern California, but you could get it up in Bakersfield. So we figured, let's make a day of it. We hop in the van, take off running. This is youth ministry at its finest. And I'm driving up the freeway and the guys are like, now you keeping an eye out for Bakersfield? I'm like, ah, you can't miss a city like Bakersfield. And like an hour north of Bakersfield, we realized we had. So, 
How do you how do you miss? That had nothing to do with anything. How did you miss John? The four faces of each one of these angels. How could you not see them? Here's how you miss it when there's something more amazing to look at. And I find it very interesting that the first thing John focuses on is the throne and the one sitting on the throne. You know that all the way back in verse 2 in in Revelation 4, that's the first thing John sees. The first thing he mentions is the throne. Ezekiel is the opposite. He sees the storm coming. He sees this, this glowing metal in the midst of it, and then he sees the beings, and he is transfixed by the beings, and he watches them, at least for long enough, to describe each one, to realize they each have four faces, to see these little coals darting back and forth, to see the lightning speed, and to see more that we'll get into in just a minute. John first sees the throne. He notices the cherubim quickly. Whoa, that guy's got a lion head. Back to the throne, you know? That guy's got the face of an eagle. Back to the throne. John's focus seems to be on the throne. Now Ezekiel gets there too. But I'm just guessing, I'm just surmising, it's just Rick. But I wonder if John missed the four faces of the cherubim because of the single face of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus and he was transfixed. And you need to remember, John knew Jesus in a way Ezekiel could not have known Jesus. John was best friends with Jesus on earth. He knew him personally. So John would obviously be more immediately attracted to the Lord. And I was studying that yesterday and I thought, boy, that's the way I want to be when I arrive in the skies. I want to be immediately attracted to Jesus. Such that no matter what else is happening around me, He is all that I see. I'm not looking to see who made it. To see who's there. I'm not going, Sup, Brian? I'm looking... (laughs) At Jesus. Amen. I, I'm, I'm caught up by His appearance, so enamored of Him, that all other glories, all other wonders and marvels fade into the backdrop. Back to Ezekiel, I point all this out to say the breathtaking scene of the cherubim gang is not about the cherubim. They are simply here to call attention to the holiness of God, which is always the role of the cherubim. To say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That is their song. That is their purpose. And every single time they're mentioned in Scripture, whether it's atop the Ark of the Covenant, formed into the mercy seat, or whether it's here in Ezekiel or in Revelation, every time they're mentioned, they remind us of the holiness of God. They're amazing beings. But they remind us that they stand in the presence of a God who is without parallel. A God who is indescribable, beyond comparison. Completely and utterly other. Absolutely unique. As he says of himself in Isaiah 45.21, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And I think only he could conceive of such remarkable four-faced beings. So they're not pretty. But second thing to note about the cherubim, they are also not without purpose. And this is very interesting. Some of you Bible students have thought through this. Do it with me again here. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, and actually several of the church fathers, saw a connection of the four faces. They looked at the four faces of the cherubim and they saw a very interesting parallel to the four Gospels as four declarations of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew describes the King of Kings as seen in the face of a lion. 
Gospel of Mark describes Jesus as the servant, as we would see in the face of a calf or an oxen, the beast of burden, a bull. Luke describes Jesus' humanity, we see in the face of a man. John portrays Jesus as the fullness of God, which we might consider in the face of an eagle. And so that's interesting, those parallels. But if you go back further, there's more information here. In Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Lord purposefully specifies an order for each of the four camps of Israel. Four camps. There's the tabernacle in the center, and each of the camps would camp around it, uh, to the east, to the west, to the south, to the north of the tabernacle, and then the Levites camp right up next to the tabernacle on all four sides. And it's very specific in Numbers 1 and Numbers 2. You can go back and study this. But on the eastern side of the tabernacle was Camp Judah. That included Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, but was under the banner of Judah on the eastern side of the tabernacle. This is the largest group. And this group numbered 186,400 men. Then on the west side, opposite that, you have the smallest group, and they're called Camp Ephraim. And they included Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. So you have the largest on the eastern side, you have the smallest now on the western side, 108,100 men. On the southern side, you have Camp Reuben, which included Reuben and Simeon and Gad. You don't have to write all this down. If you, if you want it, I can give it to you later. Or you can just go to Numbers 1 and 2. It's, it's described there. About 151,450 men on the south side. On the north side of the tabernacle, an almost equal number, 157,600 men, are Camp Dan. So you have Dan, Naphtali, and Asher on that side. All right. The picture is amazing because if we were to do a flyby, what we would see with all the camps camped out there would be the shape of a cross. The smallest on the west side, the largest on the east side. And then the north and the south roughly equal to each other. And they were not just kind of camped in one big mess around the tabernacle. The Lord was very specific. You camp in a block to the, to the south. You camp in a block to the north. Okay? You camp in a block to the west. You camp in a block to the east. From an aerial view, a massive cross. What exactly does that have to do with the cherubim? Well, the symbol of Judah is a lion. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The symbol of Ephraim is an ox. And Jesus was the suffering servant. The symbol of Reuben is a man. And Jesus is the son of man. The symbol of Dan was an eagle. Jesus Christ, God among us. So each of the four faces of the cherubim now are represented in the four camps of Israel around the tabernacle. Do you see the, the precision and the intentionality of God in creation, that He would create these angelic beings long before I assume the world began, these worshipers in His throne room, but then when He had His camps of Israel camp out, He said, I want you in these four camps. And this is how it looked. In the four faces of the cherubim, we see not only the four aspects of Christ, not only the four Gospels, we see the four camps of Israel and the four points of the cross. All of this just in these four different faces. And Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see how we say that Jesus Christ 
is the point, is the focal point of all prophecy. That as you begin to look into and think about every single aspect and nuance of prophecy, ultimately you will find yourself back in the same place, and that is at the feet of Jesus. So they're not pretty. They're not without purpose. And number three, and I I find this fascinating because I never would have thought about it this way before, but they are not ponderous. These are not ponderous beings. I think if Hollywood was going to do a version of this scene, everything would be moving in slow-mo, you know, and the music would be low and foreboding, and everything would move kind of like this. Not so in Ezekiel's vision. They are darting. I mean, they're all over the place. They're moving, he says he uses the phrase, like lightning. How fast does lightning move? I mean, it's the blink of an eye, speed of light. These guys are quick on their feet. Lightning bolts. It's a wildly dynamic scene. What Ezekiel says is not in the least bit boring. It's, wow, that everything's in motion. Little torches. And I don't even know what those are. He doesn't tell us. Something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. What are those? I don't know. <laughs> Just flashes of light. And these angelic beings, not ponderous, they are moving about quickly. And it reminds me that God is not ponderous either. God is not the God of slow-mo. Now, you may have thought in your own life, I know I have at times, I just wish God would move a little faster. Well, faith is not wishful thinking. I don't like the word wish. I don't like the word luck either. I don't like fate. I like faith. And faith is in knowing that if you wish God would do something, stop wishing, start praying, and always keep watch because God moves in His own perfect timing. And what I think is fascinating about the Lord, and we have seen this portrayed before us down through history, is He may seem to wait a long period of time to do anything, but when He does, it's instantaneous. When He moves, He moves very fast. When the moment comes, it happens quickly. But it's always perfectly timed. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about keeping His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I remind you, the time is coming when, 1 Corinthians 15.52 tells us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And when people have conversations about the catching up of the church, the harpazo, the rapture, and they make comments like, what will that be like? I don't think we're going to have time to think about it. We're just going to be there. It's not going to be like liftoff, like Superman or something, you know, checking his cape. as he, you know, it, That's not it. You're just there. Because when God moves in His perfect timing, it is instant. When He's not moving, wait for it. Pray for it. Have faith. Keep watch. So we see these living beings. And then we see something else. And, and this is where it can get a little confusing. Verse 15. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. Wheels? Yeah, read on. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. 
And all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. Well, how do you, how do you do that? If you're in your car and you want to make a left-hand turn, the wheels turn, right? You turn this wheel and these wheels turn and off you go to the left. Not so with these. I'll explain how that works in just a second here. As for their uh, rims, love this, they were lofty and awesome. I want these for my car. (laughs) Because these rims of all four were full of eyes round about. Wouldn't that work great for like parallel parking? Rock here. Yeah, Yeah. stop. Okay. 19. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. Again, that's how I want to be. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Huh? <laughs> Verse 21 tells us, whenever those went, these went, and whenever those stood still, these stood still, and whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. What in the world is this all about? And the Hebrews have a word for it, Ma'asah Merkavah. Ma'asah Merkavah, which means the arrangement of the chariot. This is a chariot. Now, it's a different kind of chariot than ever we have seen. But each of the cherubim that, that Ezekiel sees here are each riding a chariot. Now, the chariot is spiritual, like the beings are spiritual. The chariot moves with the beings because their spirit is in the chariot. Unlike you and me, they don't have steering wheels. They just think left and off they go. But how does that exactly work? Let me tell you something about these chariots, and that's the second thing to note tonight, the chariots. The Bible says they're barrel. Now, barrel would be kind of a pale, translucent green. Uh, Some translations use the word chrysolite, chrysolite or or yellow jasper. So it's kind of a greenish, yellow, translucent, beautiful, and that's what the wheels look like. But verses 15 and 16, if you read them carefully, and especially the the Hebrew tends to indicate that there's one wheel for every face, not just for every cherubim. And if you see in, in verse 16, it talks about all four of them have the same form. All four what? All four wheels for each cherubim. And there's a wheel in front where a face is, there's the face, and then down below would be the wheel. And the face on this side, there's another wheel. And there's a wheel on the back side, and there's a wheel on this side. And each one of the wheels had a wheel within the wheel that is perpendicular to the original wheel. And that's how they move in any direction. They don't have to turn, because the wheels are already set to go, whichever direction the angel wants to go. There's one in front, one to the side, one to the other side, one to the back. And those wheels have a wheel within the wheel that can go in any direction you want a wheel. Okay, this is an amazing, beautiful, awesome sight. And these beings now, because there are wheels on all four sides with wheels within the wheels, can literally go any direction they want to go. And they go that direction simply by wanting to go. They want to go left, boom, off they go. Because their spirit is within the chariot on which they ride. And I take you back now to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, and listen to the description again. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction. 
to guard the way to the tree of life. So they could go any direction because that's, that's the way the cherubim are created. And they're able to move. So the cherubim also, they don't move around blindly. The rims of their wheels are full of eyes round about. You have to be careful because when you get into such visionary language, again, using human language to describe an unhuman thing, it's very easy to get caught up in interpretations that are really beyond the intention of Scripture. You can surmise some things, and, and I will. In fact, with the eyes round about, I think that alludes to something. But you never want to say, this is what this means, if you aren't absolutely sure. And even Ezekiel, who was there and saw it, I don't think was exactly absolutely sure what he was seeing. He's just describing it. But what about all of these eyes? And John says, not only are the eyes in the wheels, John said they were all over the cherubim. What's up with the eyes? It reminds me of God's omniscience. He sees everything. He doesn't miss anything. God is everywhere. Now, if you're in the midst of sin and rebellion, that is a terrifying thought. Because He is there. But if you're in the midst of worship, or if you're in the midst of sorrow, or if you're in the midst of struggle, He's there. He is right there. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Did you hear about the senior high school cheerleader who was arrested because she was functioning as a pimp for the sophomore high school cheerleader on her squad? And it was discovered because the sophomore's mother got a call from the school that her daughter um, was, had an excused absence on a certain day back in March that the mom did not give her permission for. And she went to her daughter's cell phone and began to backtrack and see these text messages from the senior cheerleader who was pimping out her daughter to go and be in intimate situations with these gentlemen during a school day. And they were getting paid 60 100 bucks for each one of these visits. And God was there because He sees the evil that's going on in the world. God was there in Oklahoma when He saw the tragedies and, he, and the difficulties and the heartache. Uh, God was there when the bridge collapsed and, and I believe protected so many people. He sees the evil in the world. He's aware of it. It's not getting by Him. It's not like He's, oh, missed that one. Not at all. And he's there seeing all the good as well. Some have also pointed out these chariots may indicate time. That they're, all, they're, they're in motion. They're touching the earth, they're rising, they're moving like lightning in the same way God has created everything in time. And we are reminded that everything is progressing forward to His grand finale. Time has not stopped for us. Let me... A couple of times in Scripture do we see time either slowing down or standing still. Joshua saw the sun stand still for an afternoon. We know Hezekiah, I believe, was the one who saw the time slow down and actually go backwards a little bit to give him an indication that he had extra life. With those two exceptions, time has never stopped. Time is marching forward. Time is in motion. Just as everything here in this vision is in this amazing and constant motion, so our lives are in motion to the grand goal. 
And the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, He has made everything appropriate in its time, and He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet, not so that man will find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So we know that there's an eternal, we're just not sure how it all works. And I believe God dropped that into our hearts so that we will be hungry for eternal things. So, the cherubim, the chariots. And remember, all of this vision so far is only here to point us to the greater vision, the source of all glory. And finally, Ezekiel now gets to it in verse 22. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. And Ezekiel is very specific. The expanse is above the cherubim. So in this vision, the cherubim are below. John describes this in Revelation chapter 4 as the sea of glass. And the sea of glass is before the throne. And when John sees the revelation, he sees the cherubim above and around the throne, not below. Why are they below right now? Because God is interacting with earth. When John is caught up, he's caught up to a scene where all the interaction taking place in Revelation 4 and 5 is in heaven. But Ezekiel is being called to an earthly ministry and the interaction with God is an earthly interaction so his cherubim are touching down on the earth so they're below. They're below this this sea of glass. They're below this awesome crystal expanse. Verse 23, Under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight toward one another. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. So that would account for the six wings. Two wings on one side, two wings on another, two wings stretched out, six wings. Okay, I just saw that. Verse 24. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. And whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And then there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, again, he says, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something, oh, something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli, which is a sapphire color in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Now remember again, Ezekiel is using earthly language to describe heavenly things. John will do the same thing in the Revelation. Earthly language to describe heavenly things, but what's interesting is their earthly language is awfully similar. What they see is remarkably same, and yet not exactly same, because again, you have two guys from two different perspectives. You have Ezekiel looking from an earthly perspective at this awesome vision, and this interaction with heavenly and earthly, heaven and earth touching, by the cherubim. You have John in heaven, so transfixed by Jesus, he's seeing these other things, but he's really looking to the Lamb who was slain on the throne. Two guys, two different perspectives. And that's key in a trial, by the way. Eyewitnesses who come into a trial will always see things similarly, but slightly differently. And that doesn't discredit them. That actually adds to the weight of the evidence. Because you have two people seeing from two different directions what really happened. Which gives us a fuller picture of what's going on. It lends support to their claim. And that's why the Bible says in Deuteronomy 19.15, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Well gang, guess what God did? 
He gave us the evidence of two witnesses, Ezekiel and John, so that the matter of this heavenly vision might be confirmed. What we are seeing or having described before us is actual. It is legitimate, it is true, it is verified by two witnesses. And beyond the cherubim, beyond the chariots, far beyond the river Kabar, number three in our notes here, we see the Christ. The Christ. Let me be absolutely clear when he says a figure with the appearance of a man, I believe unequivocally Ezekiel saw Jesus. Read on. Verse 26, above the expanse there was over their heads something like something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it, and from the appearance of his loins downward I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. All of Revelation chapter 1, or at least a good part of it, John describes Jesus in much better detail than Ezekiel does. And again, the question is why? And the answer is the same as before. John's full attention is on Jesus. And so John is staring at him and and enraptured by him and gazing at him and describing from head to toe what he sees. And Ezekiel's just kind of, whoa, this guy's on fire. This guy's glowing from the loins up and from the loins downward. There's an amazing, uh, amazing radiance. And then Ezekiel writes in verse 28, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Okay, not having seen Jesus yet, all Ezekiel could say is, looks like a man, glory of the Lord. And when I saw, and I would encourage you to mark out the word it because that's a translator's addition. Because he didn't see it, he saw him. And when I saw, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Again, Ezekiel says, he had the appearance as of a man, and the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel saw Jesus. Absolutely convinced of it. Feinberg in his commentary on Ezekiel says, the Talmud says, there is the large face of God and the small face of God, and man can only see the latter, the small face. The Bible puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the large face, in the face of Christ. The small face, or the human face. Not small in terms of lesser, but small in terms of something we can see. Someone we can appreciate. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father which just means He is the Father, He has explained Him. And I've shared before that Greek word explained. I love the word exegiomai. It's where we get our word exegesis. And it means to make fully known. Jesus in His coming, finally in the history of man, makes God fully known to us, at least in a way that we humans can see and comprehend and grasp and understand. Exegiomai, to make fully known, to unfold And that's what Jesus does. He becomes for us, according to Talmud, He would become the small face of God, the visible, the the actual, the one we can interact with. He is the one, I believe, who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The one like a son of God who was walking around. He's the one who, I believe, visited Gideon 
when Gideon talked face to face with the Lord, not with not with God the Almighty, he'd die instantly. He's the one I believe who visited Abraham. He's the Melchizedek, I believe, who saw Abraham coming back from battle. And throughout Scripture, they're called theophanies and they're 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 human representations of God. I like the word Christophany better. They're Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures. And if in fact Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting, if He is one with the Father, if He was with God in the beginning, it should not be a stretch for us to believe that He was in all of these different situations. The representation of God. And so I believe Ezekiel saw Jesus on the throne and heard Jesus speaking who, as John said in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, so we keep Jesus right in front of us.